0: Hello, and welcome to Public Intellectual. If you're enjoying these podcasts, you can consider donating on our Patreon page and get access to book recommendations and bonus episodes and, of course, a tote bag or two. Um, It's at patreon.com slash public intellectual. And in our continuing series of what the Christ is wrong with straight white men, today we are going to talk about the straight white male writer and what is their obligation in this strange age we find ourselves in. It's interesting because it's not immediately obvious. The obvious answer would be, they need to deal with and examine and write about power imbalances and their relationships to women and people of color, and to look at the dark side of the patriarch psyche. But there are white men doing that, and it's, it's not going super great. There was this novel this year, bed is Burning, by Brian Platzer, that was legitimately destroyed in the reviews. It's about white gentrifiers and it has, let's call them, good intentions. But Platzer seems to get tripped up by his own unconscious. The black characters are not well defined or characterized and by the end of the book they all join a faceless violent mob and of course it's the white character who saves them all from themselves. It's unfair to say Well, Platzer obviously has some issues with black people, and probably women too, because holy shit, that wife character. And yet, is it unfair to say that? As we talk about in this episode, the unconscious leads consciousness, not the other way around. William James said that over 100 years ago, and we still haven't learned the lesson of it. So if you don't have your unconscious sorted and in good working condition... It's going to lead your consciousness into some weird shit, whether or not you're recognizing it as it's happening. The best person I could think of to talk about this with was John Biganet, not only because he is an exceptional writer uh, that I've loved since his book, The Torturer's Apprentice. We have had a series of thoughtful conversations over the years about the moral obligation of the writer. The State of White Men, and Why American Literature is a Literature of Victimhood, and so on. We simply decided to record one of these conversations so you could listen in. You recently published this essay of uh, questions, not answers about, uh, the moral responsibility of the writer. And you talk about your own, um, moral exhaustion. And I was wondering if you could just sort of summarize it a bit so that I don't inadequately summarize it back to
1: you. That would be, <laughs> uh, I've spent a number of summers teaching at the American Academy in Paris and, um, coming back, not this past summer, but the summer before, Um, I was suffering from jet lag and up late, so I was writing to a friend and at one point I I typed, um, I'm morally exhausted. Um, And then I sort of looked up and asked myself, what in the world does that mean? Um, And I began to understand that um, in part because of various sorts of terrorist attacks uh, recently in France uh, and because of the election campaign that was being waged that summer – I found myself in the position of constantly having to defend moral principles that seemed sort of apparent uh, until then. Um, For example, um, to hurt a child is wrong. Um, And especially to target a child uh, in a terrorist activity um, um, seemed to me, obviously, wrong. Uh, And yet after the Beslan massacre, where Chechen separatists took over a school and nearly 200 children died. It became clear that not everybody else agrees with that, and I found myself constantly having to defend, mostly to myself, but sometimes to others, these principles that had seemed obvious um, until recently.
0: Yeah, it's amazing the things that are coming out of people's mouths right now. basically to try to hold on to some semblance of power, right? So we have now people debating in public whether or not it's okay for a grown man to be sexually involved with a teenage girl <laughs> um, because the Republicans are trying trying to hold on, on to power. Um, but yeah, it becomes this weird thing where I thought we were done with white supremacy is bad. Um, you shouldn't touch... 14-year-old girls unless you're like a 14-year-old boy. And even then, probably not. Like You should probably just leave them alone. Um, but now these, these things are in our public discourse and people are having these very... I can't tell if it's disingenuous conversations or if they really don't know how to think through.
1: Well, I think one thing that, that has developed over the, a number of years now um, is a kind of feigned ignorance um, that it's clear the speaker knows that what usually he is saying... Um, has no relationship to the truth or to reality, and yet it becomes part of the ideology of a political group. Um, It it was most telling here in Louisiana where um, the effects of climate change are extraordinarily dramatic. Um, Our coastline is simply disappearing. Uh, When I was a child, for example, we were taught that uh, there was 100 miles of wetlands between New Orleans and the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, My children were taught there were 50 miles, and now they're only 12 miles to the east of the city, to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and yet, our former governor, Governor Jindal, uh, who has a biology degree from Brown University, um, insisted that there was no proof of climate change. And he was educated as a scientist. He certainly knows that the climate is changing and that 99% of scientists agree that it's man made in its causes. And yet, over and over again, he publicly denied um, any belief. And I I think that once that became part of our political discourse, that we would simply have to put up with people knowingly lying uh, about factual matters confirmed by science. um, It was easy for them to move toward moral issues next, like the ones you've just described. So, I mean, you were just
0: sort of writing about it in the frame of, so then what becomes the responsibility of the writer? Like, do we engage with the sort of obviousness of the lie, or do we actually sit here and try to parse um, reasonings for why why you shouldn't, um, you know, going back to this, touch 14-year-old girls? <laughs> um, do, we, do we sort of, um, I mean, what's your opinion as you're sort of like dealing with this of um, in your own writing? Um, how do you come down on, how do you even respond to something that just seems so... Um, ludicrous. Well, I
1: published that essay um, in the Dramatist magazine, which is the journal of the Dramatist Guild in the United States. And I was arguing that as a citizen, I have obligations that differ from my obligations as a writer. I think as a citizen, um, it's incumbent upon me to object to feigned ignorance and to lies um, and to um, a manipulation of the language. Um, That's a form of dishonesty. Um, On the other hand, as a writer, uh, I'm never satisfied when I've either read a novel or a short story, a poem uh, or a play um, in which I'm being berated with the opinion of the author. Um, And so I argued in this essay that the task of the writer is not to criticize in the way that a citizen does, but to phrase questions that the community needs to address. And so our, our duties as citizen and as writer are not exactly the same thing. I, I,
0: was, I was responding to this idea of moral exhaustion because I definitely felt that when I was writing this manifesto, which was I couldn't believe that I was having to sit there and write, um, you know, as a sort of uh, formerly slash presently oppressed demographic we should not be behaving like our oppressors, <laughs> you know, like the the sort of thing that we've been criticizing for so long in the wider culture, um, in the patriarchal culture, um, is now behavior that uh, so-called feminists are exhibiting. And the fact that I was even having to address that and have an argument about it just seemed absolutely absurd to me. Um, and so trying to move past that can be really, and trying to see beyond that um, can be really exhausting. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about this play that the, um, that the essay was a part of.
1: Uh, in fact, the essay came out of a keynote address I gave at Montana Repertory Theater in August. Uh, they have an annual uh, new play workshop uh, called The Colony and um, writers um, come from around the country. Um, uh, Larissa Fasthorse and Deb Lofa were also there this year. And um, we have classes during the day, but at night, uh, new plays that we're working on are presented as staged readings. And so I gave my keynote address as a kind of preface to my new play, The Trouble with White People. Mm-hmm. Uh, the play itself um, examines... Um, The way in which um, a murder um, that that is performed on the stage actually can be understood by uh, the legal system in the second act uh, and come to the conclusion that in fact no murder occurred at all. Um, And what I was looking at particularly were the number of cases where unarmed citizens uh, are killed um, and yet the conclusion of the court system is that no crime has been committed. And I was trying to understand how the law can come to such a conclusion. Um, and that led me into a deeper um, meditation on what exactly the law is. And so although uh, um, it, this is set in a small diner at midnight uh, with a fry cook and a waitress and a busboy, uh, in the first act at least, um, blue-collar workers um, you know, scrapping to get by... Um, the full weight of um, those questions um, or uh, can be examined um, through the events of that evening and the response of the legal system to what happens there.
0: And did you get any pushback about the title? From uh,
1: <laughs> I went up on the front page of a number of newspapers, um, although people <laughs> um, were, were very uh, fair, I thought. Um, they turned out, uh, the articles turned out to be mostly interviews. Um, and the writers asked intelligent, probing questions. And I, I tried to be um, as intelligent as I could be in answering those questions. I think um, we imagine because the country uh, is so partisan at the moment um, that people automatically go to their sides. But individual citizens are just as thoughtful as they've ever been. And when they're confronted with the kind of question that my play asks, they try to reason to their own answer. And I think the reason the response has been that is that I don't express an opinion. Uh, The very end of the play um, is very clearly a question posed to the audience, but it doesn't make clear what the answer is. I leave that to each of them to decide. And that that has created um, a framework in which um, Because I'm not approaching with a fixed opinion, the audience isn't required to automatically respond with their fixed opinion.
0: No, I mean, I was curious about it because um, certainly when you – are writing or at least when I'm writing something and you refer to sort of men in a blanket way or white people in a blanket way or just artists without qualifying it of saying, you know, certain white people, certain artists, certain whatever, um, you always get the immediate pushback of, well, not all white people do that or not all, you know. Um, it seems like there's this kind of violent, um, Dismissal of any sort of um, criticism based on privilege or or demographic or power. This kind of I am a singular um, uh, individual within this group, and I'm going to deny anything that that any sort of blanket associations that might come with it. Um, and so it. Using that kind of um, that kind of title seems like it would invite that kind of the same response that I get on Twitter and in my emails anytime I write something about men.
1: <laughs> well, yes, I, and I think the title um, uh, can be understood as a question. You know, what exactly is the trouble with white people uh, and the play? Um, and of course, as a writer, I'm thinking about that particular work and not the interpretations of the work. Um But the the play itself explains why that's the title. Um, and it, it, doesn't raise that question in quite the same way that, um, the audience expects it to be raised. Um, the larger issue you're raising though, I think is one that is of immediate concern and it, for me, it's most clear in the battle over Confederate monuments. Yeah, I, I published an essay a few years ago, uh, because New Orleans is now approaching its 300th, by, uh, 300th anniversary of its founding. In fact, next year will be the 300th anniversary. Um, and a, a number of writers were asked to write essays about the future of the city. And I argued that New Orleans could not continue to be two cities, a black city and a white city, um, each invisible to the other, in fact. Uh, And that the first step to confronting the enormous challenge of climate change, which is going to turn New Orleans by the end of this century into a walled island off the coast of the United States. um, If we continue at the rate we're losing land right now, Um, I said we have got to become one city and confront a crisis that's going to do much more damage than the collapse of our levees did 10 years ago. And I said the first step has got to be tearing down the Confederate monuments. the reaction was furious. Uh, I think the essay it was published in a Sunday paper. So a big readership, um, it was posted about eight in the morning by 10 o'clock. There were over 400 furious responses to what I had said. And all I said, um, was to quote the statements of secession of a number of Confederate States, which made clear from the outset, this is a war, um, to allow us con- to continue to own slaves. This is a war about slavery uh, over and over again the secession statements say that i quoted those and i said there's no doubt that the civil war was a, a war fought to keep some of my fellow citizens slaves and I, I said we have got to admit that first and then we've got to eradicate memorials um, to that awful moment in american history and people were could not have been angrier at what i wrote um and i think That's exemplary of the fact that as a group we can't see ourselves clearly that we grow up with a certain image of who we are as a community and Trying to get outside of that view um, uh, That's threaded through us as individuals is very difficult If we go one step further and ask what's it like to see ourselves as individuals clearly? um, uh, It's obvious that that's an even bigger challenge So I think we're in the midst of struggling um, to redefine various communities um, in the United States and and really around the world, but then that harder task of understanding ourselves and what kind of self-delusions and self-deceptions make up a great part of our view of the world.
0: Do you have any insight as to why the Confederacy has sort of um, re-emerged as something that also needs to be sort of debated or morally thought through. I mean, I thought it was so strange when um, I was living in upstate New York and about two years ago, um, my my completely racist next-door neighbors um, switched out their Don't Tread on Me flag, which I guess was from their Tea Party associations, to a Confederate flag in New New York, in New York State. Um, So I'm wondering how... If you, because I I honestly don't understand it, how the Confederacy has reemerged as this kind of flashpoint for this
1: issue. Um, It almost all goes back to 1954 in Brown versus Board of Education. Um, Here in New Orleans, um, I live near a street that um, is now called Robert E. Lee Boulevard, but as a child, it was called Hibernia uh, Avenue um, because a lot of Irish uh, came to New Orleans in the 19th century and it was in their honor. Robert e. Lee Boulevard had nothing to do with the Civil War. It had everything to do with the collapse of segregation and the introduction of integration. Uh, many of the Confederate flags on Southern state flags um, are all post 1954. So the Confederacy um, and what it did and what it stood for is beside the point. Uh, it's the issue of states' rights and the ability of the state um, to fend off national legislation. Uh, that extends equal rights to all citizens.
0: I wonder if part of it, too, is this. um, In our culture, everyone is very eager to think of themselves as um, as the victim of any situation. So somebody can be watching, you know, um, Dumbo and they're going to associate. They're going to uh, associate themselves with Dumbo. They're going to identify with Dumbo and not the trainer beating the shit out of Dumbo. Like nobody ever sees um, themselves as the bully in these things, even if they are. They always associate themselves with the victimized kid. Um, and, you know, sort of because I, I can't um, stop talking about myself. Um, but with the manifesto, so much of uh, feminist writing of the last 20 years has been um, you are the victim of society. Here's everything that's been done against you or to you. Um, and so if you ask somebody to refrain, reframe the situation so that they are the oppressor, um, and just think about that for a minute, they, they really reject even the, the sort of thought experiment.
1: Absolutely. If you look at the literature of the 20th century, we have a huge canon of victimization, but very few writers have tried to examine the people responsible for that victimization. Um, in my, my collection of stories, The Torturous Apprentice, I have a story called My Slave. And it's about a guy who goes out and buys a slave. And a society, something like the South, um, probably at the end of the 19th century. You know, it's a society that's moving from agricultural to industrialization. Um, one of the, the reasons I wrote that um, is that writers are always advised to write what you know. And in thinking about slavery and the remnants of slavery are all around us here in New Orleans, the, the charm of the French Quarter. Um, was built on the back of slaves. All of that charming architecture um, has blood in the mortar. Uh, and so as I thought, well, I right read about slavery, my impulse was right from the point of view of a slave. Um, but of course, I'm white. And so I don't know anything about being a slave. Um, but my family has been in New Orleans since 1760. Uh, so somewhere in my genes, I know what it means to own another human being or to at least be a beneficiary of a society that allows the owning of other human beings. And so I realized what I know is owning a slave, not being a slave. And so I wrote a story about someone who buys a slave um, and discovered many elements about that awful institution which had never occurred to me and which I'd never seen addressed by looking at it from the point of view of the oppressor. Um, I've got another story called I Am Not a Jew um, about someone who escapes anti-Semitism by throwing up his hands and saying, I'm not a Jew. Um, So if one turns to exactly what you're proposing, which is to look at the world through the eyes of the oppressor rather than of the oppressed, there are many insights um, that uh, we've ignored for the last hundred years. And I don't know how else we can get deeper into a struggle for equality and respect for all individuals and dignity. Uh, unless we begin to do the hard work of taking on that imaginative responsibility.
0: And do you, what, um, can you think of other writers who do do that? Um, I mean, I can think of German writers who definitely did that after exactly. World War II. But that's kind of the only country that's ever really done that work, as far as I can, have ever really seen. Um, so are there American writers?
1: Heinrich Böll, for example. Heinrich boll particularly the Nobel Prize winner from Germany, um, delves deep into um, all forms of oppression, uh, not simply fascism, but um, sexual oppression uh, and other kinds of issues. And I think you're right. Um, when you turn to Germany, Jakob Flint is another one, uh, Ingeborg Bachmann. Um, over and over again, we see among those writers an effort to plumb the depths of what exactly happened to their culture.
0: Yeah, um The Lost Honor of Katerina Bloom is one of my uh-huh. is one of my absolute favorites. Um uh but do you think Americans are doing that um or have done that in the past? I I've I'm sitting here trying to think of of uh, and I'm like look, you know, looking through my shelves cuz I'm sitting in my library, but I'm I'm kind of um struggling to come up with American writers who do that work.
1: Very few. Very few. Um one of the essays I've been working on for a long time now is called um, Sentimentality and Morality. And I think that something that's happened to our culture um, in my lifetime is a movement away from arguing from moral absolutes to anecdotal discussions of morality. Um, so um, if we take capital punishment and abortion, for example, okay, um, if you argue that life is sacred, um, then you will certainly oppose abortion, but you're also going to have to oppose capital punishment. So it's much safer to construct an argument based on anecdote um, that um, back alley abortions, uh, which or used to be symbolized with rusty um, coat hangers, or on the other hand, you're killing babies. Um, on the other side. Turns it into a kind of narrative that's very easy to control in terms of its implications. But if you turn to the large moral foundation, for example, life is uh, sacred, then a conservative has got to oppose capital punishment if that person opposes abortion too. I, I think there's been a shift away from arguments of morality and focusing instead on sentimentality, uh, which is almost like always expressed narratively, um, and and therefore all we talk about is how something feels, how something has injured me or someone else, rather than extrapolating out to a principle that has to be applied to all experience.
0: Right, um, I was talking to the philosopher Bruce Robbins about this in a, in a previous podcast, that the sort of larger um, ethical or moral structure um, has disintegrated so that we take issues one by one um and so then it becomes a sort of like lifestyle rather than a philosophy so you know this is the issue i care about and i'll devote things to time and money and energy but everything else can kind of fall away or be disregarded um and that sort of thing which is how you get you know um ethicists like peter singer um you know active in the world um but, yeah, I, I think that there is something very interesting about that idea that the larger framework um, for us to understand our place in the world and the consequences of our actions um, have has disappeared. And for me, as, as a um as a lunatic, I blame the death of God, but uh, but that's just me.
1: Well, that's one way to talk about it. Um, but I, I do think you're absolutely right. Um, if we tie ourselves to moral absolutes, that's going to constrain our behavior. Um, and if, on the other hand, each moral question is handled in an ad hoc fashion um, and typically by way of an invented narrative, then I'm free um, the next time any sort of moral quandary arises to make any choice I want without reference to the earlier decisions I've made about ethical behavior. Um, so I think, um, you know, death of God might be one way to talk about it. But I I think fleeing moral absolutes. um, It allows a a freedom of action, uh, a liberty of action, I guess, um, that um, continues to provide us a basis for doing anything we want. And that's how I got morally exhausted two summers ago, because (laughs) many people feel free now to do anything they want, uh, unbound by sets of absolutes.
0: So, how does one begin to filter this into fiction without becoming um, somebody who just yells at everybody
1: all of the time? I, I think, as I argued it in my essay, um, that the writer has to be focused on questions, not answers. Um, I, I alluded to my story, I Am Not a Jew. And at the very end of the story, um, it, it's an American couple, middle aged, and they're actually in their 50s. Um, they're in Germany as tourists. And when they get back to the States, the husband, who has escaped some Nazi skinheads by saying, Ich bin nicht Juden, well, I mean, his broken German, I am not the Jews, he's really saying, um, if, confesses to his wife what happened that night. And she is furious with him um, for having taken that way out. Um, so she turns her back to him, falls asleep, and he, he appeals to the darkness for a solution, but it, it offers him no answer. And that's where the story stops. And I think that's what, for me at least, that's what I must do as a writer, bring the reader to the edge of the question, um, but stop short of answering it. And then I'm not berating the reader. I'm simply posing a question that perhaps is worth considering.
0: Um, I remember you and I were were talking one time, and I can't remember how it came up, but I I said that I felt sorry for Uh, straight white men and this was a couple years ago before (laughs) before the full collapse of the straight white man um really really was taking place on a daily basis like it is now um and your response was would you have felt sorry for the aristocrats in pre-revolutionary france and i said yes or at least i thought it in my head i don't know if i said it out loud but um i i still think i feel sorry for straight white men um because their project right is to in some ways uh relinquish power um in some in some way um and how does even one think about that project um it seems like nobody's ever done it gracefully everyone's always done it by force or violence um so how does one um do that. Not that you have to have an answer and like a plan and a bullet point, you know, thing. Um, But maybe you should teach classes. You could have like a, you know, like an online course and charge uh, white men $1,800 for three weeks.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't I think this is actually a continuation of the beginning of our conversation today. Um, What's happened is that as we've given up absolutes, we've also given up the absolutes that constrained the behavior of white men not just white men, I, I think the male. Um, when I was a child, the idea of honor um, was very much alive. And a man uh, who acted dishonorably was castigated by his neighbors. Um, that's disappeared. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that it ever applied to women because um, the society at that point assumed that women always make the honorable choice. It's only men who might not. And um, And I do think the absence, the loss of certain virtues, um, which were fundamentally constraints on behavior, um, has um, created the same chaos uh, for straight white men um, as it has in other areas of our society. If I have to act honorably, uh, I can't do the kinds of things that white men in the newspapers seem to be accused of day by day. And honor, I think, is just one of the the virtues. Uh, Loyalty is another one um, that have been diminished during my lifetime. Um, They've almost been abandoned, in fact. Um, And I think that um, that's another example of absolutes giving way. And we see the results of not having certain pillars of belief that one builds and accepts and organizes one life around.
0: Yeah, I mean... um... Again, going back to Germans, um, Hans Magnus Enzensberger wrote this book called *Civil Wars*, um, where he talked about the um, right. So the the uh, the crumbling of patriarchal virtue. Um, so these sort of uh, codes that men were supposed to live by have disappeared, and part of the reason that is is because the patriarchy is disappearing. So the mechanism of patriarchy still exists which is that it tries to bring out certain qualities in men, like aggression and competitiveness and, and so on and so forth, because that's useful to a patriarchal culture. But the patriarchy isn't strong enough anymore to actually direct that energy. So it um, produces violence, it produces aggression, but doesn't direct it in the same way, which was you know, um, war, <laughs> because we needed all of those... Men, those young men, doesn't give a shit um, that they were about to die violently. Um, so, you know, uh, anyway, uh, so he he well, saw it as, uh, as proof that the patriarchy was um, uh, further along in its destruction than anybody wanted to admit, but that nothing, the chaos is a sign that nothing else has uh, come
1: up to replace it. The abandonment of constraints, uh, I think, has had a lot of uh, implications for the world we live in today. Uh, Bill Buford, I think, in Among the Thugs, um, his um, book about um, English soccer hooliganism um, says it's pretty much the same thing you just said, which was in the 19th century, these British hooligans would be sent off to make war on natives in the empire. Today, um, they go to the soccer stadium every Saturday and fight one another there instead. Uh, The military enforced a set of constraints on their behavior um, that allowed them to exercise that violence um, in ways productive to the empire, to colonialism. Uh, Today we have none of that, and so it's turned to whatever is near at hand.
0: Yeah, which is just crowds of people, it
1: seems, right? Crowds of people or a wife, um, uh, and domestic abuse um, is one more expression, as you say, of the violence inherent in the patriarchal system, and that's fostered by it but is no longer constrained by it.
0: Right. I mean, even today, there was another sort of um, revelation that the last mass shooter, which I guess was yesterday, um, had murdered his wife before he left to go. Um, yeah. Um, and it, it's.
1: I saw that. I also saw that the president um, simply copied and pasted whatever he <laughs> said about the last mass shooting for this mass shooting.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, he yeah. Even got and forgot to change the name.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, but I think that's indicative uh, of another issue that, um, from a writer's point of view, is very important, and that's um, an assault on language, um, and what is, is, in some sense, an absolute relationship between a word and its meaning. Even though that, of course, that's always evolving, um, but turning one's back on the dictionary um, is much more dangerous than uh, society may realize. Um, so that when we we see these incredible sentences that comes out of um donald trump's mouth um that's an assault on democracy in itself because if we can't speak to one another we can't debate and if we can't debate we can't make choices um or intelligent choices at least so language is part of what's been going on um and um the way we we change this change in virtue that we're talking about like honor for example um is diminished um in itself, but by the way we talk about it as well.
0: Yeah, and it seems like the patterns are increasingly obvious in the sense of um there's another mass shooting every day and it's always the same type of person and it always, you know, the the first warning signs of domestic violence are always there, and et cetera, et cetera. But we seem um reluctant to acknowledge the pattern or to do anything about like the um the starting point um which is the violence in the home um yeah it it just seems like we're in this ridiculous place where our stories are worthless to us because we keep being told the same story but we feel trapped within it and we can't imagine a different kind of story does that make sense
1: it does. And it's once again, we can't to appeal to an absolute. Um, the, the position of the NRA um, and um, people who support um, this expanded notion of the Second Amendment is another example of refusing to embrace a constraint. I mean, in the 1930s, nobody objected to um, legislation that prevented automatic weapons like Tommy guns um, being widely available. Uh, but today, uh, any kind of constraint on behavior is resisted as uh, a fascist impulse of authoritarian government. Um, So I I think this balance between liberty of behavior um, but certain constraints that we must accept as a community uh, is out of balance right now. Um, And it affects everything that that you're talking about.
0: And it seems like the literature of our era is so... um insubstantial Um, because either you have sort of people evading the issue entirely and just sort of writing about their lives um, or you have um, people very inadequately trying to address um, very serious issues. Um, There was this this gentrification of Brooklyn novel that came out um, this year um and i'll i'll avoid the title name but because um, you know poor guy but uh it was it was really <laughs> terrible um and he, I know he was trying to make like some sort of important statement about white people moving in, into a um, historically black neighborhood. Um, and that, but then he just sort of recreates everything because the, uh, the black neighbors turn against the white family because of a, of a police shooting and all the black people just become like this faceless mob. Like they're, they're not in any way um, sort of individualized or um, uh, made to be understandable or sympathetic. Um, and I'm just like, everybody needs to get their unconscious, like straightened out. You know, William James wrote this a hundred years ago. The Mm -hmm. unconscious leads the consciousness. It's not the other way around. You can't decide to be not racist. You can't decide to be not misogynist. Uh, you gotta get, you gotta get in there guys. Come on, let's do it.
1: (laughs) Well, I think one way of doing that is what you were talking about before, Um, by avoiding um, the perspective of the victim and beginning to explore the people responsible for victims. Um, uh, Right now, um, I think over half of white Americans who have been asked feel that discrimination against whites is a major issue. And um, about two months ago, there was one in which working class whites said that it's as serious a problem for the United States as discrimination against minorities. Um, we can just dismiss that out of hand and, and ask what in the world are they talking about uh, when they ob- there's so much obvious privilege um, attendant to having white skin. Um, but I think as writers, we got to take that seriously and try to imagine our way into their perspective uh, and ask what what is it about the way in which they're interacting with the world which leads them to that conclusion? uh i'm working on a novel right now set in the late 50s in new orleans about the collapse of uh, neighborhoods as they're integrated and the effects of that on the the families um all of which are delayed families because world war ii had ended just about 10 years earlier um and in those days everybody's saving was their house so if your house's value plummeted uh you lost everything um i think looking at at integration, from their point of view, um, is going to reveal things um, about the complexity of moral advancement that, no, as far as I know, um, most writers in the United States are ignoring.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it also seems like there doesn't, there's not an acknowledgement that the writer has an obligation. Um, that so much of it is written about. Oh, it's about personal expression. It's about my my creativity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the idea that you have an obligation as a writer in any way, shape or form is an unpopular one right now. Um,
1: it's a constraint on behavior. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like I should be allowed to write anything that I want to write. I shouldn't have to, you know, if I want to write my, my memoir or a novel about, you know, my childhood or something, um, where I'm the hero, um, because that's what all of these are is like a, a oh, lot of, sort of like, um, her, yeah, like fucking Jane, uh, the hero's journey has ruined, has just trashed our culture for, for centuries, I think. Um, but, uh, um, right.
1: So no, I, I think you, you totally right that it always seemed to me that a fiction writer's obligation is to imagine another self and uh, not his own self. Um, and that our job is not to express something, but to communicate something. Um, what's confusing, though, is we're not communicating an answer. Uh, we're communicating a way to look at our at, at a community's experience that forces them to raise questions about the life that they're living.
0: So you teach writing. Yes. Um. So do you do you talk about this when you teach writing?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Oh, I talk about the ethical obligation of the implications of what any writer puts down on paper. And for young students, um, who certainly in the beginning of their careers, they need to express for a while. Uh, They need to get to know who they are. Um, And like Key says, I learned by speaking what I have to say. Um, Young writers learn by writing who they are, perhaps. Um, But there is a certain point at which Certainly for me, I couldn't imagine a least interesting subject than me. Uh, I was so much more curious about other people um, and uh, about the conflicts in which they find themselves. That that's, that's when I started writing fiction. I wrote poetry until then. Um, and American poetry is almost always about the self. Um, in fact, our great epic is called Song of Myself. <laughs> <laughs> but fiction, I thought, and, and certainly theater now for me, too, is a way of escaping myself. Um, and lodging my imagination in another perspective. Uh, In the end, I'm asking the questions that concern me personally, um, but not from my perspective, um, but through the eyes of someone else. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey.